Hello, and welcome back to Shoulder to Shoulder, where we are walking with each other, growing in love of the Lord and each other. I'm Megan Silas. And I'm Pam Marvin. And we are so happy to be back. Uh, we, If you're listening to these in sort of a regular way, we took a little summer break, just a couple weeks off of posting new episodes, but now we were back and... I think it was in a way kind of good because this gave people maybe a little opportunity to catch up with the fact that we're doing a book study. And if they hadn't uh, gotten the book and been able to read a little bit, uh, the last two episodes, we did uh, the introduction and the first chapter. And so today we were, are going to be doing the second chapter, chapter two, which is entitled Minucius Felix. Yes. And this is a quite a long chapter. There's a right, lot right. in but this Let's one. back up just a second and okay. remind our listeners that we're, we're, we are talking about the book Friendship and the Fathers by Mike Aquilina, how the early church evangelized. So it's it's kind of a twofer here. You right. Know, about Absolutely. The friendship and about evangelization. Right. So that's so been kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah. Two things that we really totally are into. So and interestingly enough, um, as you if you've read much of the book now, you you can start to realize that while the author wrote quite a bit in the introduction, he actually doesn't write a lot That's in right. this book. He's pretty much curating a group of writings uh, by various individuals from the early church to represent uh, what friendship meant to them uh, back in the, in the early times of the Christian faith and how they use their friendship as a means of evangelization. And so uh, in the end, you're, we're actually reading a lot of things that are written quite long ago and mm. only very rarely does the author kind of pipe in and, and give any commentary. So this whole chapter, uh, there's right at the beginning, you know, we get just a little bit of explanation of who Minucius Felix was and, and the, the style that this uh, particular writing that's going to be shared in this chapter uh, had, but uh, the the vast bulk of the chapter is simply reading this particular um, piece by him that talks, that describes yep. a friendship being lived out between, among three individuals. Right. You know, I'll take a pause there on that too, to kind of describe the times they were living in. Not everyone was Christian, obviously. Oh, no. But I want to try and make a correlation with the days we're living in. Mm -hmm. While some people may really identify as Christian, it's defined truly by, I believe in Jesus Christ and I follow his teaching and his ways. Right. That's completely different than just saying I'm a Christian. So if you're thinking, well, you know, this doesn't apply to me as much because everyone around us is Christians. So I'm not really evangelizing to them. Um, I take a little pause on that to say, mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's back up on that a little bit because how many people do we know, Mayan, that truly are with their whole heart, soul, mind, and body trying to live as Christ is taught? Right. Um, I mean, I look around me and I pray that I've all included those in my mm -hmm. friends. But, you know, you look at family and it gets sure. further out and that's just not always the case. So if you're thinking this isn't as applicable to you, well, let's listen closer. Right. And I also think the reality is, is that in this day and age, even if somebody is definitely a Christian in the sense that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they acknowledge him as their savior, they have a Trinitarian view of God, there can still be a lot of dis disagreements, a difference of opinions on, you know, various doctrine and things like that. So even within 
Christianity, like there's still opportunities to evangelize regarding, you know, the the truths that uh, maybe, you know, have gotten a little muddied over the years, right? Because, you know, one of the things that in this time uh, of a very early Christianity, while heresies started literally from the get-go, right? But there's still a little bit more of a purity in the sense of what is Christian doctrine, because you're closer to the original sources of the apostles, right? But, you know, over time, the waters get more and more muddied. And so then even within the the family of Christians, there's all still um, evangelization to be yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I thought right up uh, towards the beginning of the chapter, um, one of the things I thought was a little thing that I highlighted where it said, Emperors despise Christians for their superstition. <laughs> and I think that's a, just a, the reason I thought that was really interesting is the point of how we label things a lot of times. Like, because we look back and we look at the faith of the, you know, what we would call the Roman pagans, right? You know, we're all, the, all their gods and all their silly, you know, what in our minds, you know, offerings that they're making to all these different gods. And we look at those things as superstitions, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, when you're coming from a totally different mindset, what we believe as Christians, and I think increasingly in a culture that it becomes post-Christian, when you have more and more people who were not raised with Christian teachings, they can sound more and more like superstitions. Virgin births, people coming back to life from the dead. This is all sounds very fantastic. Well, and the sacramentals right? too. Right. And the sacraments. Yeah. yeah and sure. the sacramental like relics and all these sort of things. And, and, you know, some of those things, particularly as they differ between Catholics and Protestants, I think that's an area that question of what superstition mm-hmm. uh, can be very much a place of discussion. Very um, much. And a lot of what it comes out there often is true, deep misunderstandings about what's actually believed by Christians and where it all comes from and how it's been presented over the ages, right? And how it has or hasn't been lived out in the lives of Christians, right? Because the reality is, is that we can have all the teachings in the world and they may be beautiful and true, but if our lives aren't a testimony to them, they're just going to look like hypocrisy to people, Mm -hmm. you know? For sure. Another point I want, before we really get into the conversation between the friends, one of the things that I just felt like I had to quote from the chapter uh, was also towards the beginning where it said, um, you know, so basically during this time that this guy was writing this, uh, it was pretty much against the law to be Christian for the most part. You could be killed for it. And, you know, the, oh, you know it, they went through waves of persecution. Sometimes were better than others, depending on who was emperor at the time. But this was definitely a time where it was before Christianity was openly accepted. And so um, he made he was making the point that Christian soldiers were kind of desired because they were reliably courageous. That's right. And then he went on to say in times of epidemic, the major cities came to depend upon Christian doctors for the same reasons. And I have to say, when I read that, <laughs> I, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a little bit of a, you know, a point where we can say, have, have Christians emerged 
as that reliably courageous right. in time of epidemic. Like, I'm not sure we really gave that yeah, I witness. Don't think we, I don't think we meet, met that mark. No. Yeah. And, you know, honestly. Maybe some. Definitely some. Right. But I have to say this. It breaks my heart. It actually really, really makes me sad to think about what we did. That closing of the churches and saying out of fear of the health of the body, we are not going to attend to the health of the soul. I hurt when I think about it. And in my heart, I say never again. But then with the knowledge that I don't have any control over that happens again or not. Right. I'm with you, Megan, so close. I think we've had this conversation like the last time you were in town that uh, I just it just makes me really um, more adamant that not on my watch. I don't Mm -hmm. want this to ever happen again. This is so wrong. And but what can we really do other than just be faithful? Well, I actually have had a thought because I have a priest friend. I would say he's my friend. He's my confessor, but he's also my friend. And. I have decided that I want to have a little conversation with him and say, you know, Father, can we talk about if this happens again, what are you going to do? And can I like discuss with you the reality of when is it licit to be disobedient to a superior when you are seeking to be a shepherd? Mm-hmm. Who, who are you ultimately responsible to? And in this situation, when it comes down to maybe, you know, the bishop of a diocese saying you can't hold mass and the souls of the people who you minister to, and can then I just offer you the opportunity if you feel like you want to continue ministering the sacraments, but you can't do it at your church or at your place, uh, you know, where you would normally offer sacraments, I offer my home. You are always welcome to come here and celebrate Mass, no matter what is said. Right. You know? Yeah, it it does remind us of uh, the early Christians, doesn't it? We are, and that's one of the reasons we're studying this today, Megan, is because uh, their witness and the way they conducted themselves is something that we need to to look at, examine, and see how we can synthesize it into today's times. Right. Yeah. So if we want to get, um, you know, kind of move to the meat of this chapter, uh, it is a work of kind of quote unquote fiction. So basically what the author is saying is that although it's probably not, you know, an actually like a full on document of of something that happened exactly like this, and, but that these individuals, it's known that they all three really existed and that they probably did have some conversation similar to this. But this is a style of literature that's pretty common from back then called a dialogue. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, the two most famous works on friendship are written in this way. And it's Cicero's On Friendship is written as a dialogue. And then St. Alred of Riveau, his On Spiritual Friendship is also written as a dialogue. So this is sort of interesting because I think that's a really important point to make, which is friendship exists in a place of dialogue. And if you're not having dialogue about important things, you really aren't fostering significant friendship. 
And there's a quote in here that says, reason discussion in the context of friendship was a good beginning to any conversion story. (laughs) And I think that is really important. You know, sometimes people get into this mindset that evangelization looks a certain way, which is, I become completely learned on all sorts of theological, you know, points and that I can defend that in a way that they do on like Catholic answers and, and, you know, be this huge apologist to the masses. Well, God may call some people to do that and God bless the people who are, who are good at it and are given Mm -hmm. a platform to do it. But. In our day-to-day lives, the most effective means of evangelization is not talking to a bunch of strangers about a whole bunch of theological knowledge that you happen to have. It happens on the one-to-one in a relationship where the person has come to know you actually care about them and that you're sharing your heart with them, not just some ideas out of the catechism, your heart Mm -hmm. and how that has led in your life to a sense of peace, a sense of freedom, a sense of joy. That's the witness that causes an impact on another. But unless you're willing to talk about it, no one's ever going to hear. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So that's really what this chapter says is like one friend, the Octavius guy, he's like, I've got some issues with y'all as far as Christians go. And then the, uh, what is his name again? Caecilius. Caecilius. He's like, well, I've got some answers to what your issues are. Let's talk it out. And so right. Minucius Felix is over here like, okay, well, let me just referee this situation. <laughs> and, yeah. and so the willingness to have the discussion, I think, is the most important thing to point out. Right. right. I want to pause on that for a yeah. second because that's what applies so well in our day and times is right now, Megan, because things have really shut down as far as dialogues. When you know someone doesn't believe or think as you do, you, we just like, ah, waste of time, move on. But no, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of the reason we're talking about this today because we want to open up that loving dialogue Um, with one another to share our hearts. Right. And there's a little quote on um, page 24 where he says, you know, he's getting these two people together and he says he wanted to make them friends and he wanted to make them Christians. This idea that it's not just I'm okay. You're okay. Believe whatever you want. You know, maybe you're into new age spirituality. That's good for you. No, it's not good for you. Mm -hmm. If you truly believe that the Christian faith is the truth and the sure way to heaven to love another is to desire it for the other. Amen. And we've gotten so far into this place of relativism in this world that we think that we can't be a good friend and want somebody to convert. Right, right. Your truth is your truth and mine is mine. Right. No. My thinking is you can't be a good friend and not want them to convert. And that goes for Protestants to Catholicism, too, because if you really truly believe that Catholicism is the fullness of the truth, is the church established by Jesus Christ and the surest means of grace through her sacraments, if you don't want that for your friend— then you're not loving your friend to the extent that you're called to love them. That's my opinion. That's that's a call. That's a, that's strong because I can say um, 
I need to listen to that because I've got some family members that, you know, their faith is so big and so great and it's so beautiful. It's like, man, I have something to learn from them. And you do. Yeah. And that's an important point, too. Just because you exist within the Catholic Church, which has the fullness of truth in her doctrine, doesn't mean that you're living out that fullness of truth with all grace and power and that there aren't things that we can learn from others who maybe are experiencing grace in a way that we have not accessed. Because the way I think about it is this, if it's true, it's mine. As a Catholic, anything that's true belongs to me. And if I don't know about it yet, then I need to learn about it so that I can embrace all that is my inheritance, right? Right. So I'm never ever afraid of somebody saying, let me show you or teach you something that has really brought me closer to the Lord, made me grow in grace and and knowledge and power in this Holy Spirit or something like that, because I will listen. And if, it, if I can discern truly, this has done this in this person's life, they are powerful in, in the Lord, then that means I can grow through that as well. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Yeah, because the Lord, while he has established the sacraments, he is not bound by the sacraments. Exactly. And so they are ways that he works outside of the Catholic faith at times that we can learn from. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is really where these three folks are. They're learning from each other, right? And so one of the beautiful things I think about it is that the way it's written, they give the dissenter to Christianity the first word. Mm-hmm. They're like, just say it, just say it, lay it out, buddy. What's your, what's your beef? Yeah. What's your beef? I like you know, that, yeah. right. Like, yeah. and with no interruption, no, but, 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 but no, 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 no. they let him speak mm-hmm. and share all that is on his heart regarding these things. And, and, you know, some of the things that he talks about are really interesting because you can see where he would come up with a misunderstanding of what's going on. Like, remember the part where they talk about (laughs) what's going on at mass and they say that, well, y'all are like covering up a baby in flour and then you're dismembering him and eating him and drinking his blood. And you're like, you're reading that and you're like, okay, where is that coming from? Right. The Eucharist. (laughs) eating the flesh and body of, you know, the Lord. So, but it's in the form of bread. So there you get the flour and all this sort of thing. Right. So clearly this is a gross misrepresentation of what's actually happening. But if you listen, you can say, okay, I can see how a distortion of what's happening could bring these thoughts to your mind. So you can acknowledge there is something that led to this interpretation. Now, let me tell you the truth of what's actually going on, right? But unless you hear what he has to say, you're not going to be able to understand where the objections are. Because honestly, if that's what people were actually doing, you know, covering up a baby with flour Mm -hmm. and then dismembering him and eating him, yeah, that would be really messed up. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, uh, to kind of piggyback on that a little bit later in um, the chapter, they talk about how 
the pagans will hurt children, will, mm-hmm. but the Christians do not hurt children, right. which I thought was a very fascinating yes, point. That was a fascinating because basically the he was saying um, that the very things that you accuse us of doing, which we're not actually doing, you do. Yes. Right. And just that sounds like a familiar theme these days. Right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And it it is, it's a, it gets to the point of being honest with the realities of the circumstances and facing our, you know, superstitions or not superstitions, excuse me, our, our presuppositions about what other people are believing, but then being honest about what we're actually doing. Right. And so I think we can also then kind of turn it around and say, this is the, the alternate would be, this is what you say you believe, but this is what you're actually doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That goes back on us, right? As right. Christians. Oh, man. And so, yeah, this is just yeah. much for us, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, let there be no duplicity in you, meaning, mm. please, I, I interpret it this way, Megan, and you may have another way, but I that always me says, you know, live as I believe. Right. Because yeah. that's a very hard challenge. You know, like even St. Paul says, I do the things I do not want. Right. right? Yeah. But, so for us to try and reduce any amount of duplicitous duplicity within us, meaning let me live the way I believe. I mean, that's a, a prayer on my lips every day because I don't know. I think I fall short fairly often on that one. Oh, we all do because all have fallen short of the glory of God. Right. Oh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. That's of why God. I love hanging out with her, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> She reminds me who I am as a as a as a beloved daughter <laughs> of the king. And I, I forget that sometimes. When I'm with Megan, she always brings me back to right. that. But remember this. I think that in the end, pretty much everybody understands that no human being is perfect. Mm. Right? We mm-hmm. we we have an innate sense of that. But the powerful thing is to admit when we've fallen short without a sense of just self-flagellation, but just a, a real acknowledgement of, yeah. your, you know, I admit that I don't always live up to the ideals of my faith. Right. I don't live up to who I want to be, nonetheless of who God calls me to be, right? And so, but when we're honest about that, when we give the mea culpa, right. when we say, you know what, in that moment, I wasn't who I was should have been for you or I didn't live in a way that was consistent with my faith. You don't look like a hypocrite anymore. You look like somebody who's just real, who's human, who's human, who strives, but falls. And that the keep getting up, continue to strive. That's a witness in itself. Right. It's the vulnerability, Megan. Right. Absolutely. To be able to be vulnerable to other people by saying, look, I'm not right all the time. I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a humility that's needed to be a good witness for the Lord. Yeah. So definitely when you are in a place where you want to evangelize to another person and you're doing it within the context of relationship, you know, remember that acknowledging how you fall short can be just as much of a witness to that person as Living it out beautifully, mm-hmm. you know, because it does show that humility and it shows, I don't think I'm any better than you, but God is greater than both of us and he can continue to work in and through us. Amen. One of the great little lines that I think was in this, which again, 
uh, is very relevant to our times. It says, the only defense of the general madness is that there are so many mad people. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's true as well. Like when you think about it in that way, you you know, when we look out at the world, I think uh, one of the things that it it can be uh, tempting for us as Christians to want to do uh, is to withdraw within ourselves, withdraw within the community, to not want to engage the broader culture because so it seems true. like such a mess, right? And you don't want to step into that mess. And aggravating. And it's and aggravating. And it's, and it's, like it's you know, infuriating yeah. at times. But if you think, if you think of somebody who's mad, like in the sense they are, have a serious like psychological defect where they they totally can't they don't understand what they're doing they're they're out of control things like that you would have a sense of compassion towards such a person right oh my gosh that must be so hard i can't imagine like that well the reality is is that so many in this world in this day and age have been corrupted by the madness of the age they have been told they have to believe things that are contrary to human nature. They have told, been told that they have to say what is wrong is right. They have to sit, been told that they don't have any right to thinking that there's any truth that's, that's transcendent. And when that has been just pushed and pushed and pushed on people to a large degree, what they do and say and believe is that they can't help it. Right. And that we are called to speak truth into an age which has fallen into grave error, you know, has been so much controlled by the lies of the evil one. Right. To the to to such extent that even the idea of truth is now debated. Is there such a thing? Right. Which is just that's just like crushing to me. That that's even debated in our culture. Yeah, absolutely. Another one of the points they did make in this chapter before we wrap it up, Megan, was that Christians are happier in misfortune than pagans in prosperity. Ah, yeah, that's beautiful, right? I liked that one a lot. One of the things that I really loved about as they ended up this chapter, in the end, what happens, you know, is that they both debate their sides, you know, Octavius against the Christians, and then uh, Caecilius gives the Christian point of view. And Minucius Felix is supposed to, like, say who won the debate. Well, in the end, he doesn't have to say anything because Octavius comes around to Caecilius's way of viewing things and converts, basically, yeah, yeah. which, let's just be honest, chances are it's not going to happen by one conversation. Yeah. So this might set your, set your expectations a little bit too, yeah, uh, this is too optimistic. Literary alliteration. <laughs> right. But anyway, he comes around to the way of thinking. And one of the things I really love is the way um, Minucius Felix talks about it. He says, I w- he's basically is talking about how he was overjoyed by the result. One, because he didn't have to claim that one person won. Two, because Octavius came to the knowledge of the truth. And three, because Caecilius won. And so everybody wins in this yes. circumstance, right? right? And so, but I, this points to this desire to rejoice in the good of the other. Right. It's not about winning an argument. Right. It's not about having the right answer to a theological, you know, debate. It's about the soul of another and them coming to a place of knowledge that will bring them joy and peace. Mm, amen. That's the true gift, the true glory 
the true goodness that comes through evangelization, it's not winning the argument. Exactly. exactly. It's winning an even deeper friend than you had before, because now Christ is between you and in both of you, and you will never become closer to another individual than when you share Christ with that other individual. Thanks be to God. Thanks Amen. be to God. Amen. So, you know, Instead if, of wrapping it up, Lucius Felix yeah. and Octavius and Caecilius, you know, the, what they're saying, these were all real guys, and hopefully they all, you know, achieved the eternal reward of heaven. So we ask them to pray for us. Pray for us. Right. Right. All right. Are you ready to end it on that, Pam? I think so. Well, okay. thank you so much for joining this episode of Shoulder to Shoulder. We ask that if you have enjoyed our podcast, that you will share it with a friend who will you think it might bless. And until next time, God, God bless. bless.